Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, hello everyone. Welcome back to the Discipline Study channel in the New Books Network. This is Joshua Wan. Um, today I'm very happy to invite Dr. Amanda Apaga to, to join us to talk about her newest book, The Disabled Child. So the first thing I want to invite Dr. Apaga to introduce herself to us. Hey, Shu, thanks so much for inviting me. And hello, everyone. Um, this is Amanda Apgar. I'm an assistant professor of women's and gender studies at Loyola Marymount University. Okay, thank you so much. So next question I want to ask Dr. Apgar is that, could you please tell us what's the reason you, inter- you take interest in the promising field of disability studies? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I've been working in feminist disability studies since uh, 2013, um, and I was introduced to the field by uh, an instructor or professor when I was in graduate school, um, Leba Fair at UCLA, who um, asked me to read Raina Rapp and Faye Ginsburg um, during an independent study we were doing, and it just sort of blew my mind. Um, I think... Uh, I being in the field, I feel I think that the field like, you know, gender and race and class and all of these other sort of like areas of social experience um, doing disability studies is so rich because it's it touches every single part of our life um, from identity to politics and art. And um, but I think for me particularly, I I started in disability studies through Raina Rapp and Faye Ginsburg and thinking about like these relationships in families where there is disability. And then I started reading memoirs and um, I am just so fascinated by the way people construct stories of their life um, with disability and how also they feel compelled to tell that story. Like I am so just fascinated by this cultural idea to like make a story out of our life, 
whether we're like doing Facebook stories or Instagram stories or like writing a memoir. Um, and then the particular ways people construct narratives about living a life with disability um, in the in the cultural moment and that achieves other like sort of cultural aims. So yeah, like the answer to the question, like how did I get interested and why am I interested um, is honestly just like, when it's uh, obviously like disability touches my own life in in many many ways, and that adds a particular level of of um, interest in the field. But I I honestly just cannot get enough of it. I'm just like so compelled by the stories and just want to keep reading. Okay, thank you, Professor. Thank you so much for your answer again. So now let's go to your books. So my first question is that I want to invite you to talk about how you discuss sorry, how you deconstruct the narrative of progress, fundamental to both childhood development and a neoliberal rationality. Sure, thank you. Um, yeah, this is a pretty foundational idea in the book. Um, the book, The Disabled Child, is about stories parents tell about raising children with disabilities. Um, and it's based on reading very many <laughs> memoirs written by um, almost entirely able-bodied parents about raising a kid with disability. So um, one of the central ideas in the book is, is to sort of think about the narrative of childhood development that we in the U.S., and I'm going to talk a lot about we speaking broadly to like an American cultural audience, um, but we have this idea about childhood development that is, you know, relatively young in the history of medicine and um, and continues to sort of evolve. But basically, which, you know, presumes children enter the world in, as, in a state of total dependence, and then they leave childhood when they achieve adulthood, which is marked by total independence, right? And so I think about that narrative in the context of disability and how disability changes it. But also in the book, I'm engaging with neoliberalism, neoliberalism as a rationality, both to think about our compulsion to tell stories about our lives and also about this idea of like a future that has improved upon the present, which I think also underlies the childhood development narrative. So thinking about neoliberalism as a rationality or like applying um, market logics of strategic choice making to our everyday lives. Um, I think of it in the way that we make decisions in terms of cost benefit analysis. So like how I can make the most gains with the least investment. And I think we, we all do this or, or sort of are fighting against doing this, um, with the sense that we should all be individually responsible for ourselves and to make the best choices for our lives without government support or assistance. And so it's similar to neoliberal economic policies of non-intervention in the market. And so anyway, neoliberal rationality is all about autonomy and choice-making towards this improved future. And in my book, I talk about childhood development in the way that emphasizes that that taken for granted outcome of childhood, which is the maturation into an independent adult. And I do this by looking at childhood development texts and public health literature, including CDC milestones and um, other developmental literature and also Dr. Spock. Um, and I emphasize the twin or entwined relational ideas of childhood as dependency and adulthood as independence. So I'm not arguing in the book that childhood development is 
is itself neoliberalism, but rather that they both emphasize autonomy as like the paradigmatic ideal. Um, and I think it has implications for disability in adulthood because of the way adulthood disability is assumed to impede an individual's autonomy and also invokes ideas of dependency and child-likeness. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, Professor. So my for my next question, I want to invite you to talk about your argument that the overcoming narrative is so, so, up, sorry, so ubiquitous in the general, I mean, memoir is enabled by the material and this discursive privilege of whiteness, whiteness, sorry, and reproduce that or colonial logic and entitlement to belonging. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, so yeah, the so I write about the overcoming narrative, which is written about so much in disability studies. Um, but just to recap, it's the story that disability, you know, that there are obstacles allegedly posed by disability um, and the protagonist in the narrative or the movie, you know, whatever it is, over gets to overcome those obstacles and live the life they were supposed to live if disability hadn't gotten in the way or whatever, right? And so um, Thomas Kauser, uh, who writes a lot about memoirs of um, of or he writes about disability life writing, I should say, um, writes that this is the preferred story of disability because disability is overcome and we don't have to, the audience doesn't have to really think about structural ableism. It's all about the individual pulling up their bootstraps on their prosthetic legs and <laughs> making it happen, right? So, um, so sometimes overcoming is a cure, but just as often it's, it's like overcoming psychological barriers or social barriers. Um, and so I am sure that the overcoming narrative touches everyone's life. Um, however, most cultural projects about disability, including TV shows and movies and memoirs, are about white people. And I have tracked about 300 memoirs um, written by parents about raising children, and fewer than 30 are about children of color. And these are English language memoirs published primarily with the exception of just like a very small handful in the United States. And they are totally and completely about white families. Um, and so since most of those are also overcoming narratives and in this chapter in my book, I ask what it is about whiteness and the overcoming narrative. And I basically argue that the whole overcoming narrative implies that there is an obstacle in your path. And if there's an obstacle in your path, that means your path was supposed to be clear, right? Because there's an obstacle. So I ask like who gets to experience the sense of entitlement to a clear path, but not, also who, not only who gets to experience that sense of entitlement, but in what cultural register do we as readers or consumers of movies and TV shows recognize, oh, that obstacle isn't supposed to be there? So who gets to also then imagine being restored to the path they were supposed to be on? And so I argue that this is the logic of settler colonialism because it's white people reenacting a narrative of entitlement to life in public and cultural space, um, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's the idea of whiteness as property, whiteness as, 
as claim on both narrative and actual material, so discursive and material spaces. Um, and one of the, I, I read a few memoirs in this chapter to sort of show that sense of entitlement, but I also um, do a close read of The Broken Cord by Michael Doris, um, which is about his son who is who has fetal alcohol syndrome and a number of developmental disabilities because of that. But it's also one of the only books about a native child. Um, and there's no overcoming narrative in the story. In fact, it's totally bleak. Um, and the narrative of overcoming isn't even sort of possible with the way in which the Doris's memoir is framed um, downstream of, of um colonization. Okay, thank you so much for your answer, Dr. My next question is about your third chapter of the book. So I want to invite you to talk about the memoirs in which a child's disability serves as a catalyst for a parent's community and perhaps rewards improvements. Yeah, so um, the bulk of um, the two middle chapters of the book, chapter three and four, are sort of these, they go, kind of go together to to talk about how, yeah, like um, the overcoming narrative that shows up in, in most of the parental memoirs is not necessarily about the child overcoming disability, um, but rather like the parent overcoming sort of their fears um, about what disability would mean for them. And one of the big things things that I argue in the book is that gender and heteronormativity um, is one of the primary tools by which they can like make the argument that, that, um, that they can overcome and that they will overcome. But so like to, to address the ways in which the memoirs um, catalyze this improvement narrative, um, it's, it's one of the primary things parents will say is something to the effect of my child was born, they were diagnosed with a disability, I thought everything was going to be terrible, but instead I became a better person. Or instead, I learned that I was capable of more love and more care than I ever imagined I was capable of. Um, Or um, sometimes in one memoir, um, which is called Not Even Wrong by Paul Collins, um, he writes about raising his young son who has autism. And in the memoir, um, Collins sort of like constructs, he constructs this history of, of very famous and very historically important men with um, autism diagnoses or suspected autism um, who have made like huge commitments to social good, Isaac Newton, um, Alan Turing, and Collins kind of creates this family tree in which he plots his son and then later himself, you know, like many parents of children with autism, Collins later comes to recognize his own his own autistic um, self, I guess, right? So Collins basically argues that like, you know, autism is is an incubator for genius. And so instead of seeing his son's autism as something that's going to derail his future life, he writes about it rather as his son being, you know, the descendant of this lineage of geniuses who you know, saved the world. Um, 
And so, yeah, that's sort of like a little bit of a more extreme example, but other parents, you know, like um, Amy Julia Becker writes in A Good and Perfect Gift that, you know, this woman was a um, seminarian, a woman of really deep Christian faith who struggled with her faith uh, after her daughter was born and diagnosed with Down syndrome. She didn't really understand why, quote unquote, broken people would would happen in, in God's perfect world. And then she comes to this really like rich and deep understanding of what perfection truly means. And it enriches her faith. And, um, you know, she comes to see, uh, she doesn't ever stop sort of understanding down syndrome as, um, I don't want to re I don't want to reuse the language that she uses, but Down syndrome ends up becoming a catalyst that she understands that it's through disability that somebody's relationship to faith could be enriched because you're like, God is here even now. So some of these narratives are really brutal. They really reinscribe um, you know, the tragedy, uh, the quote unquote tragedy of disability. Um, even as they they want to say, like, but look how wonderful things turned out, right? The, and, and it's like that, that, um, that transformation into something wonderful depends on disability being a tragedy in the first place to catalyze and catapult like this, this alternate story. And, and like, I, I, I think all parents of children probably, you know, would say that their kids help them, learn about life and love in these like profound ways. And they're like totally enriched by maybe not all parents, but many parents are really enriched by the project of raising a child. But in the disability narratives, many of the parents, it's not about the child, it's about the disability. And they even write to take away the disability, which would be to take away that child. And so I want to maintain a, a, a skepticism about disability and childhood being used in that way where it becomes essentialized to who the child is and the parent's self-improvement. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Margaret. So let's go to chapter four. So for chapter four, my question is that I want to invite you to talk about the ways in which heteronormativity operates as a narrative device to mitigate the assumed narrative effect of disability and to import disabled ch children in the dominant discourse, sorry, discourses of a childhood and adulthood. Yes. So this is the chapter that really started the whole project. And I have to give a shout out to Alison Kafer, who um, in Feminist Queer Crip, she has a line. It's on page 56. <laughs> when I was a graduate student, I read this line, which said something to the effect of, um, of that in the eyes of medical professionals, um, children with disabilities are basically genderless. And that entire line really influenced my, it's influenced all the work that I've done since then. And she knows this, I've told her in person, but <laughs> I'll tell everybody. Um, but so, yeah, uh, the first memoir that I read was called Keeping Catherine um, by Susan Zimmerman. And what I noticed was um, she stressed over and over and over again throughout the memoir that she couldn't reconcile, her daughter has Rett syndrome, and um, 
has profound uh, cognitive um, and communication disability, no uh, functional use of her hands, issues 100% dependent. um, And her mother, Susan Zimmerman, um, wrote that she just couldn't understand how a child who was so severely affected by disability could also be so beautiful. And she, she gives so much space in her book to discussing Catherine's beauty. And in comparison to her other children, she writes about how beautiful she is. And it goes beyond, it goes beyond just her beauty, even though she like talks about how she puts um, bows in Catherine's hair and she dresses her in like really pretty clothes. And she writes at one point in the memoir, I hoped that all of the, the frills and the girliness, the gender normativity basically would, um, would, would counter Catherine's otherwise visible manifestations of disability. So she's basically saying like, if I can, if I can get, you know, people to see her as just a little girl or just pass over her quickly enough because of the bows, then they might not see that she's actually quite disabled. And at one point in the book, she writes about how Catherine should have been a total heartbreaker in her teenhood. She, she said she, she was going to be stunning. She was going to break all the boys' hearts, but instead she won't, right? So this to me, I was like, incredible, right? How is she using the idea of heterosexuality and gender normativity to not um, mitigate the effects of disability, but as a way to um, really underscore the sense of loss that she had? Um, and so there's, in a number of books, um, I can't even tell you how ubiquitous the narrative of um of the disability memoir that that starts with the diagnosis and the parents or even the person's sense of tragedy and then concludes with a heterosexual coupling of some kind. It's so ubiquitous um, that I like will joke about it. The story goes, my daughter was born and she had a disability, but she grew up and got married. And so it, or she grew up straight and got married. And so it all turned out fine. Um, uh, Paul Doherty's memoir, An Uncomplicated Life, is my favorite one to talk about this because he writes literally in the beginning of the memoir when she's born his and she's diagnosed with, um, Jillian is diagnosed with Down syndrome. He says, I will never be able to walk her down the aisle. And then he talks about how he wanted her to go to homecoming and prom and kiss a boy on the porch. And he writes that Down syndrome, without those things, because of Down syndrome, her life would only be a half existence. And that's a direct quote. Um, And then she gets married at the end and she marries another, she marries a man with Down syndrome and um, he says it's his wishes fulfilled. Um, So yeah, there's another memoir that I write about um, called Following Ezra by Tom Fields Meyer. Um, And this one is about a boy who has autism and um, he's Jewish. And the narrative begins with his diagnosis and ends with his bar mitzvah, which is a symbolic entry into manhood. Um, So yeah, it's just, it's just ubiquitous in the genre. I actually just finished reading, I mean, way overdue. This came out very long time ago, but Martin Pistorius, um, 
uh, Ghost Boy, which is a not a parental memoir, but a but a personal memoir. And even his narrative is he has Lockton syndrome, and the narrative concludes with him getting married. It's just the heterosexual marriage is a narrative device that really restores a person with disability in the in these memoirs to quote unquote normative life, right? So all the obstacles have been cleared out of the way because they're straight and potentially reproductive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, thank you so much for your answer. So let's, let's talk about chapter five. For this chapter, I want to invite you to talk about your arguments that outside of time rather than anti-futurity is precisely where new narrative possibility for writing and theorizing disabled experience emerge. Yeah, so um, in this chapter, this is my chapter that engages with um, queerness as it shows up so infrequently, but occasionally in the in the memoirs or in ways that I can like think through. But um, I write about children whose parents' narratives construct um, a lot, like very subtly, you know, deal with the queer in order to think of new ways of writing disability stories that aren't the overcoming narratives or the tragedy narratives. Now, I don't. There's only one. No, there's two memoirs that I can really think of that actually do this, but I think rather what I'm hoping to do with this chapter is, is try to think about other possibilities of writing the stories. Um, so the two ideas that I'm, that I'm working with that you mentioned here, anti-futurity and outside of time come largely from Alison Kafer again, um, who's writing with Jose Munoz and Lee Edelman and specifically Munoz's critique of Edelman's anti-futurity, wherein the figure of the child represents the heterosexual reproductive order that proper queers need to reject. And Munoz shows that Edelman's figure of the child is always already a white child because POC children don't inhabit that same sort of precious futurity in like the American cultural imagination, right? So they don't have the promised and idealized future. And so in my book, I write about the disabled child who, similar to Munoz's children, don't inhabit that idealized future, but also who due to disability, both are not supposed to exist in the future, right? The the better future is the one that has improved upon the present. And as Alison Kafer and many others have argued, like disability is not supposed to exist in a better, healthier future. Um, but so also, not only are disabled children not supposed to exist in the future, but disability is also sort of queer in relationship to heterosexual and able-bodied futurity. And what I mean here is that disability scholars have shown that disability is queer because of its relationship to heterosexual reproduction, because people with disabilities often do sex and family and reproduction in non-normative ways. Um, And even when in normative ways is still often perceived as exceeding some sort of like culturally sanctioned um, 
heterosexuality, right? Because of the relationship to child likeness um, that is assumed about disability. And so Alison Kafer um, and others, in addition to showing that like disabled sex is queer, have also shown that disability has a non-normative relationship to time, which in the field is, is called crip time, um, which among other things includes the atypical rates of childhood development among disabled children. So in this last chapter, I take all of these things together and then I write about disabled children, quote unquote, growing up to become these sometimes dependent and also sexual adults. And it, they don't, they can be heterosexual, they can be fully independent, but being constructed in the cultural imagination as sort of um, alongside queerness and the specter of dependency. So the disabled child who grows up into this dependent, sexual, disabled adult throws the whole hetero ability idea off. She's not supposed to exist in a normative timeline from dependent to a independent or from non-sexual to heterosexual because disability makes her perceived as both less autonomous and sexually queer. And I think that that is rad because it's flipping the narrative um, on what childhood development is supposed to look like moving from dependent and protosexual um, into independent and heterosexual. And I think that that's what makes it so provocative and promising. Um, and so I, to, so to conclude, and I know this is, <clears throat> I just talked a lot, but um, Alison Kafer coined this outside of time idea when she was writing about Ashley X, who um, under went a uh, growth attenuation um, number of surgeries to quote unquote, keep her, you know, body and mind in line because she has a severe cognitive disability. Um, And so she talks about people, bodies of people with disabilities being outside of time. And I, I want to retain the possibility that, um, that a disabled child who still in this cultural moment, their, their independence and their sexuality is viewed with a great deal of skepticism. I want to allow us to understand that the banal reenactment of heterosexuality in adulthood for a disabled adult is in itself rad, right? And so I can't get with just dismissing the idea of futurity altogether, but um, but that and but accepting that and seeing that rad potential there means that we have to like rework our expectations about time and normative development and what developmental achievement actually looks like. We thank you again for your answer. So now let's go to the last question today. So for about your conclu- the conclusion of your book. So for this one, I want to invite you to talk about the criticism from disability advocacy subgroup that the special needs parental member enacted, sorry, enacted an erasure of all, sorry, decentering of the disabled child's voice. Yeah, so there's this... Um... There's this wonderful book that came out, I think, in 2020, Allies and Obstacles by um, Alison Carey, uh, Pamela Block, and Richard Scotch. And they write about the history of um, parental activism. And um, they do they do all the amazing work there of sort of setting up, you know, this very brief discussion I have in the conclusion of my book. But, but basically, 
you know, um, disability advocacy and the fields of disability studies has, is totally, um, run by the first person experiences and the narratives of people with disabilities. And historically, those stories have not been given any space or ground or attention, right? And the folks that were doing the advocacy um, or who were controlling the narratives were largely people in caregiving positions or in medical um, positions, right? In relationship to the child with disability. Um, And so it's like so utterly important to the field and to the into the ongoing work of advancing disability justice that the first person experiences of people with disabilities are, you know, our primary site for, um, for learning about, you know, learning what we need to know and what we need to change. Um, and they're part of the first person narrative should be centered and, um, they're part of part of like the move to to emphasize those stories has meant that parents and other people who have traditionally had the microphone need to back off um and that shows up all over the place um in online forums um i especially encounter uh I especially encounter a lot of that like tension around who gets to control the narrative um, in the autism um, spaces right now. Um, and there's also a, uh, you know, a long history of, of um, academic publications that start from the perspective of parenting a child with disability rather than the first person experience of having a disability itself. And I think, so what I, what I write about here in the conclusion is I think that there is a, um, there's like a, you know, a, a very well-founded historical um, nervousness, right, about these gains um, that are totally tenuous. Like in the in the current political moment, it seems like at any moment, like we could uh, lose major ground for people with disabilities and their access to life and thriving. And um, I think there is a well-founded and historically um, informed skepticism of parents uh, telling stories about raising a child with disability because historically parents have not been disabled children's, I mean, they've been allies and obstacles as Carrie Block and Scotch say, but, you know, they've all, parents have also been the site of rejection. Um, Parents have also been the ones to institutionalize their disabled children, right? So they haven't been the most trustworthy of allies historically. Um, And they still take up a lot of space, right? They still take up a lot of space. Um, But what what I think about in my work and, well, a couple of things I think about. One is I think that the parents today are not the same parents as the parents of the 60s and 70s and 80s. I think that more parents are seeking out input from people with disabilities to make help them make decisions about raising their child. I think more parents are open to learning American Sign Language or at least recognize that there's a thing called the deaf community and deaf culture and they're, you know, open to the possibility of their child inhabiting to, you know, the hearing and the deaf world as it is, or more parents are 
open to the ideas of neurodiversity and seeing autism and related um, uh, related neuro um, divergencies as as a way of being human, right? Um, so I don't think I don't think parents are the same boogeyman boogie parents that they were in the past. Um, but also, more than that, I think that parents um, are, uh, you know, really important um, stakeholders, and uh, they are often their child's first advocates, and they they can be their child's first advocates. And so, I think that as much as we, as scholars and advocates, want to be wary of the decentering of a disabled person's voice and amplifying a non-disabled person's voice or a, a care provider's voice, we have to also recognize that there are conditions in which um, a disabled person cannot always speak. And one of those conditions is just the very condition of, of childhood and like needing to be protected from, from how being public can make one vulnerable. Right. Um, and so in my, in my book and in the conclusion of my book, I, I want us to think about the parental memoir genre, not as, not as the disability life writing genre, but as this sort of like alongside story or set of stories that are in conversation with disability life writing and that inform the way we think about the cultural reproduction of disability. Like we can't not listen to the stories that parents tell because parents are going to continue to tell the stories. Um, and so we need to think about ways uh, to think about caregiving as a site of labor um, as in, and, and parenting as a, as a site of caregiving labor um, for people with disabilities and think about how we can um, incorporate that perspective through perhaps a, a, an affiliation lens or a caregiving lens um, that uh, doesn't res doesn't sort of like result in these like binary um binary ideas of the disabled and the non-disabled person, but rather see, see sort of the way, especially in childhood, um, the disabled and the able-bodied parents' lives are totally in, entwined. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Abgrim. Thank you so much um, for your introduction and discussion of your book, The Disabled Child. So at the end of this episode, I want to talk to our audience. So me as a disability historian, I very appreciate Dr. Apaga's newest book, The Disabled Child. I want to say for anybody with interest in either disability studies, memoir studies, and childhood studies, you may consider buying a copy of Dr. Apaga's newest book, The Disabled Child, which is one of the best books on this topic, on this subject. So thank you so much for listening to our episode today. Thank you so much, Shuk.